This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kohatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd has unfolded on television screens across America, bringing up painful reminders of what happened on May 25, 2020, and unearthing new details about an incident that sparked a mass movement. It seems that on trial is not just one officer, but all cops that have brutalized and or killed people of color and especially black Americans. Much depends on how this trial unfolds and what its outcome will be, but the conversation around policing in America can and should be even deeper. Today we'll dig into it with my guest Professor Robin D.G. Kelly. He is a professor in the Department of African American Studies, distinguished professor of history and Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in US History at the University of California in Los Angeles. Welcome to the program Professor Kelly. Great. It's so great to be with you. So this these past couple of weeks for those of us who have been paying attention to the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd has been very difficult because we've sort of been reliving all of those things that um drove thousands and tens of thousands of Americans to the streets last year in mass protests not just in Minneapolis but all over the country to demand that black lives matter it's it's resurfacing a lot of these issues but we're also learning so much new about the last moments of George Floyd about the interactions between witnesses and police what are you feeling and thinking as you're watching this trial unfold and it really seems like it's not just about the trial of Derek Chauvin but a trial of policing in America if you will no no question i mean it's difficult to watch um because you we all feel re-traumatized by that moment uh what i think is powerful about the the witness testimony especially people like you know Chris Martin this kid who's working behind the counter uh who made what he feels like his own personal decision uh to turn to tell his manager about having this $20 bill that was counterfeit and the consequences of that and the tragedy is to see how in reliving uh the violence of the police all these people feel responsible but not the police you know there's a sense of a, a kind of collective responsibility the collective responsibility of people standing outside trying to uh uh to implement their own citizens arrest to stop the police from killing this man and so to me what what really matters is that we see Derek Chauvin's actions as being consistent with policing in not just in Minneapolis but across the country i mean the trial um is kind of giving the impression that he might be rogue he might be breaking with uh with protocol when in fact what we're seeing is someone who clearly feels empowered to take this man's life even if that may not have been his, his intention but feels empowered in front of all these witnesses right to 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 basically um uh torture this man and what's so tragic is at that moment uh when um i think it's Donald Williams says i called i called 911 i called the police on the police that to me is an indictment of the entire system there's no one to turn to to protect our public safety 
and the and, and EMT people who are sort of there uh, feel helpless to, did, to enter. What do you make of the fact that fellow police officers, current and retired, are testifying against Chauvin? We we've heard that the witness list includes the police chief of Minneapolis, and that might be unprecedented for the for, for him to be on the prosecution's witness list. Does this go to what you were saying uh, just now about they might be trying to paint, the prosecution might be trying to, the prosecution, you know, might be trying to paint Chauvin as a rogue officer, which of course would help indict Chauvin, but maybe let off all other, uh, you know, police who commit brutality? That's exactly the point. I mean, there, there's a number of police officers, and like you say, the chief of police, who's the first black chief of police, um, who is willing to testify against Chauvin by saying that what he did was excessive force, it went beyond police protocols, but what it ends up doing is taking the police in its systematic violence off the hook. And that's why a lot of the activists on the ground both in Minneapolis and across the country, are saying justice for, for George Floyd involves completely remaking this thing we call the police department. Because, you know, almost everything he did was within reason of police thinking. You know, it was, was within the protocols of policing. And we have a long list of, of people in Minneapolis who died at the hands of the police uh, for which there was no accountability. So that's going to continue to happen unless uh, this trial leads to a real transformation in policing, not just, the, not just moving money from one part to another, uh, but really changing the way uh, uh, law enforcement and public safety is, is implemented. There was a great opinion piece in the Washington Post by Eugene Robinson entitled, Black Americans All Got Derek Chauvin's Message loud and clear, and he goes on to explain how the way in which Chauvin, you know, said to witnesses, we've got to control this guy because he's a sizable guy, looks like he's probably on something. And Eugene Robinson wrote, well, that is exactly the message that police basically give, especially to black men in America, that they are to be controlled, that by virtue of their size, maybe they, they might be imposing an in in uh, in height that they especially might need to be controlled if they can find that they might have had drugs in their system that's yet another post uh you know uh you know and an, an reason to to commit some kind of extrajudicial assassination so the america is seeing especially black america is seeing in chauvin the typical officer exactly exactly and that makes him unexceptional um, and one of the things I think is important, both in, in uh, Eugene Robinson's column, but also just thinking about policing as a whole, is that you know people come with a certain culture, and that culture involves a couple of things you mentioned. One is that black men are dangerous; they're naturally criminal. You know, you have to control them. But the second thing, and this has to do with the question of drugs. You know, we've witnessed in the war on drugs a lot of mythology about the role that drugs play in um, escalating violence, in you know, bringing out the violent nature in people. And we know even opioid addiction doesn't produce a violent response. 
you know, we, we sort of, we know this, even crack cocaine doesn't produce, heroin doesn't produce a violent response. But that myth uh, that drugs and race, drugs and blackness together is the source of the scourge that police are, are you know, up against. That leads to kind of a justification of a certain kind of policing. And, you know, that goes back to broken windows, the war on drugs, all of that. One thing that's been so interesting watching this trial is Derek Chauvin's former girlfriend, Courtney Ross, um, who is white, testifying about the shared drug addiction struggles that she and George Floyd went through together, admitting that they were both struggling with opioid addiction. We've seen a very different um, approach of white communities who've struggled with opioid addiction compared to black communities that have struggled with addiction to other substances. But in this particular instance, I found it was such a fascinating symbolism of seeing this white woman and her former uh, boyfriend, a black man, both of whom shared the drug addiction. And the defense attorney was forced to, because we've changed the way we talk about drug addiction, Mm -hmm. was forced to, in front of this witness, Courtney Ross, thank her for talking about her addiction and, 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 you know, addressed it as a struggle. And in her humanity, of course, we are going to be forced to acknowledge the humanity of George Floyd, the person who was also struggling with a drug addiction, right? Right. I mean, that was a curveball to a lot of people. One, the fact that he was in in an interracial relationship. And, you know, there's association, as you know, um, with whiteness and opioid addiction, white working class, um, uh, uh, being a white working class scourge, right? And there's a way that there's a kind of empathy um, for those folks who have been really duped by pharmaceutical companies. The story that Courtney Ross tells is also a kind of a duping. You know, it begins with chronic pain and chronic pain, you know, becomes opioid, opioid uh, use, which then Right, she struggled addiction. with neck pain. He had right. back pain. Exactly. And, and that's, the drug is designed to be addictive. And, you know, when when you have that relationship, I think you know on both the prosecution and the defense side, and also the, 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 those who are witnessing uh, this this uh, trial, you get thrown for a loop because you know she she represents op- uh, op- opiates in 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 whiteness, and and he represents blackness and drug addiction, and together it just disrupts the whole narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, there are lots of reasons why uh, the trial and the events since May 25th have actually produced a level of empathy for George Floyd that's unusual compared to so many other cases, you know, and that I think has already kind of set the stage for uh, a prosecute for um, a defense that has to constantly vilify and criminalize the body of George Floyd and leave behind his story. 
The white uh, firefighter who's off duty was another interesting witness, uh, Genevieve Hansen, who was scolded by the judge for, in his mind, being argumentative, which I thought was really bizarre. But um, she simply did not play into the defense attorney's attempts to trap her into saying, well, you were emotional, you cursed at the cops. And she said, well, wouldn't you be emotional if you saw somebody die in front of you? Uh, you know, yes, my you know, people's memories uh, get uh, jarred and, and might fail in when they're in traumatic situations. But then isn't it a good thing that the whole thing was videotaped? I mean, it was really powerful to see that refutation. And it does feel a little bit like we're in this ch turning point now where maybe white America, some parts of it, are on a journey with the rest of us to see this one police officer who symbolizes policing in America be convicted. Right. I hope so. I don't know, maybe I'm being too optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 do, I do hope so. I think it, it really does uh, pivot on the question we, you, know, you began with, and whether or not, and that is whether or not what Derek Chauvin did would be perceived as standard police practice. And this is the irony, that if it's perceived as standard police practice, then he shouldn't go to jail. You know, I mean, this is, this is the contradiction we're dealing with. Um, on the other hand, if he's seen as a rogue officer breaking all protocols, then yes, he ought to be prosecuted, a second degree murder, third degree manslaughter, all those. But then that allows the rest of the police department, the police structure to say, you know, we're okay. We just need to get rid of bad apples. And this is, this is exactly the fight we've been fighting, not just since 2020, not just since, you know, 2014, but really for the last half a century or more, uh, the idea that the problem with policing is not a matter of bad apples. It's a matter of the entire structure it needs to be changed. I want to talk about children um, in this trial. I mean, the, this trial is bringing up so many issues. There's a 17-year-old, I believe she's now 18, uh, Darnella Frazier, and her nine-year-old cousin who witnessed what was happening. And I just was so moved by her saying that she saw in George Floyd her uncle, her brother, her father, and then Charles McMillan, a man who is you know, similar in age, I think maybe a little bit older than George Floyd was, breaking down on the stage saying, you know, that he tried to tell George Floyd, don't fight it, this is that you can't win. Um, that one of the other things we're seeing on display through this trial is that black Americans know so personally and so viscerally that police are, have treated them historically with such dehumanizing brutality and 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 from from a wide age age range from a nine-year-old to an elderly man that reality and how they've had to live with that how you've right. had to live with that is just it's 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 in our faces right right it's it's i mean that's why i can't i can't watch all mm -hmm. the trial um, it's, it's heartbreaking, but what's really heartbreaking isn't that what they witnessed was new and unusual. I mean, it was unusual in terms of the length of the killing, but part of the issue is that, you know, Darnella Frazier pulled out her phone because she knew the police, not because she didn't know the police, not because she assumed the police were doing good. 
so many kids grow up and witness police violence, witness shootings, witness death. And I know, I mean, I just talk about my own life growing up first in Harlem and also in California, where it, being a teenager, uh, I remember in Pasadena in, this, in the 70s, it meant that you were subject to constant police harassment, especially if you're out after curfew. I mean, we just knew the police were, we'd be on our bikes and the police would stop, they would terrorize you, they use flashlights, they'd show their guns. Um, and that's every day. And imagine you're 12, 13, 14 years old, that's what you deal with. And so when Charles McMillan broke down and cried, he wasn't crying just for George Floyd, he was probably crying for all the people that he knew who experienced this kind of violence, and if not just the violence, the humiliation. You know, so it's it's really the trauma of what it means to live under occupation is visible in this trial in a way that it really hasn't been. One of the issues that uh, other contradictions that's coming up with is that um, we've heard from leading organizations and figures in the Black Lives Matter movement that we can't just first of all, reform our way out of this, which means throwing more money at police. And, and, and already we've seen year after year, those expensive trainings haven't worked. But also we can't sort of imprison our or incarcerate our way out of this either. Um, that, that sh so I'm wondering where you fall on that. I mean, it, it seems as though the, the, that it's terribly important to see Chauvin be convicted for him to walk away free after this would be such a slap in the face and yet his incarceration wouldn't necessarily be enough justice right correct I mean and this is this is this is where I fall on this um I'm not you know I'm not like thrilled about the idea that if he's convicted of second degree murder, he's going to go to prison for what, 15, 20 years. Um, I don't think imprisoning Derek Chauvin is, is in and of itself justice. Um, I also don't think that letting him walk away without accountability is justice. So for me, I'm not interested in caging anyone. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, as someone who's shaped by kind of abolitionist thought, uh, no one, no matter what your crime, should should put you in a, should it. Won't bring George be, Floyd back. Exactly. No, mm -hmm. caging won't do that. What it will do is is it would certainly use a lot of resources <laughs> that we could be used for other things. However, um, what we need to do is use the opportunity to continue to support those activists on the ground, many of whom are occupying that street at 38th in Chicago. Um, in, in Minneapolis, insisting that they're not going to let the streets, uh, let traffic pass until certain kinds of reforms are in place. And, and when you look at the list of reforms that they have, I mean, it comes down to some basic things like ending qualified immunity, um, you know, ending the conditions that really enabled uh, Derek Chauvin to take George Floyd's life, Floyd's life and, and, um, and, and, to, and, and for his colleagues to stand there and watch. Um, you know, the kind of death dealing systems of policing that uh, we've come to accept as natural, all that needs to be, be um, eliminated. We need to basically 
not just defund the police, but abolish the police as we know it and put in place forms of public safety that are more democratic, that keep us safe. Uh, and also, you know, in the case of George Floyd, let's just take a very basic, basic story. If he was being accused of trying to pass off a counterfeit bill, there's no reason to arrest him. I mean, let's just say, you know, just based on traditional law enforcement and, and traditional kind of criminal justice, they could have come up and said, you know what, we're going to give you a ticket. You can't do that. You know, and you got to show up. There's a summons. Um, there's a fine. Um, they, they could basically, you know, don't do the transaction. Um, he put him on a list. I mean, just very basic things that don't require well, any you know, treat him like Treat him like a, a white woman in a, in a middle class or a wealthy neighborhood, maybe who wrote a bad check or who tried to use a counterfeit bilge. <laughs> exactly. In that, in that case, every, everyone around them will probably just pull out their own wallets and say, I'll cover it for you. Right. You know, I mean, it's so basic. It's so basic. So that to me is the fight. The fight, the fight for abolition doesn't end with the conviction of Derek Chauvin. It, in some ways, it needs to be ramped up. So let's talk about the framing of all of this, because yes, policing as a whole is on trial in the trial of Derek Chauvin. But the other backdrop is that it's playing out at a time of intense inequality in the United States today, you know, after a year of a pandemic, more intense for communities of color. Almost every indicator that we're seeing around the pandemic, Black Americans have been disproportionately affected. Americans as a whole have been affected. And then you look at the numbers, we parse them by race, we see more jobs lost um, in the Black community, um, fewer new jobs created there, more healthcare issues, more discrimination. Um, All of these are backdrops to that story, right? Which is why defund the police, the built-in message to defund the police is pour those funds into things that help our society be less unequal. So that is an aspect of the conversation that I think isn't really being told, but we are slowly starting to address inequality, or at least acknowledge it's a problem, right? We, we Americans know, no matter even, even regardless of race and, and where they stand on the political spectrum, it seems as though most Americans understand today that we live in a deeply, deeply unequal society and something needs to be done about it. Yes. Um, I think that's definitely the case in the, uh, no matter what we think about the Biden-Harris administration, uh, there's at least a discourse, a conversation about inequality uh, and the, you know, the American Rescue Act itself was an attempt to try to, you know, not resolve the question of inequality, but at least try to get money in, into struggling families' hands, which is a, a far cry from where we were before. However, um, and this is, I think, a critical moment. I don't think it's an accident that, you know, we have this trial and, this, and all these issues around George Floyd's own precarity uh, comes up right after uh, the you know, workers in Bessemer, Alabama at the Amazon warehouse have been fighting for union recognition. And that struggle has actually uh, really inspired uh, a new labor movement. And you know, if we're gonna be really serious about how to deal with the problem of inequality, we can't expect the federal government, even the most liberal government to resolve it. Workers have always been at the forefront of making the kinds of demands 
that we need for a living wage, more than $15 an hour, uh, for better working conditions, especially given uh, this, that the era of COVID is not over. Uh, we need safer workplaces, more job security, uh, food security. I mean, these are the things that people are fighting for. And uh, I think that we are on the verge of a new labor movement that could begin to bring those things into being. And it's so important, isn't it, to acknowledge that in Bessemer, Alabama, the warehouse in question that conducted the vote, the union vote, is 85% black. The workforce is 85% black. This is a black-led labor struggle. In its, in, if the, you know, I mean, it could, it, 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 this Amazon does not have any unionized workplaces in the United States. It does in Europe. <laughs> but here, th- and this is why, of course, Amazon has been fighting tooth and nail with a very, very sophisticated, but also also sometimes not so sophisticated disinformation campaign to to undermine this vote and i think this is a really it's i think it is important for us to cast it in terms of uh, economic uh, and racial justice issues right exactly uh, and in fact um, that plant is 85% black and majority female which is representative of what the working class is in a state that is a right to work state, an anti-union state. Uh, and, you know, and I think um, it's not an accident that this is where a kind of new labor movement begins in a place that has a long tradition of struggle for labor rights, a long tradition of struggle for, for basically civil rights in terms of the black movement. And coming out of this spring 2020 rebellion, many of those activists who came out of that experience uh, worked at Amazon, you know? Um, and so I think these are, this is a really unique moment. And, and what I think is really important is that Amazon is the kind of company that tries to use its liberal credentials uh, to, to hide its union busting tactics. So this is the same company that, you know, that, that claims that we already pay our, pay our workers in that investment of $15 an hour plus. Uh, and where we're trying to push Congress to make sure that all other employers pay $15 an hour without ever acknowledging that warehouse workers in Alabama who are unionized make $20 an hour plus, you know? So this is sort of where we are. And one of my concerns is that companies like Amazon have become so big, so powerful, we're so dependent on them that the kind of solidarity we would need to change those labor conditions, like a boycott, for example, would be hard, we'd be hard pressed to, to pull it together. It's not impossible. Um, but once again, black workers, black women are leading the way for a labor movement that is expanding. Uh, they're looking to organize Amazon workers in Baltimore and in Florida and in California, in New Orleans, um, Portland and Denver, these union drives are really taking off right now. And Amazon last year during the um, protests around Black Lives Matter, 
like many other corporations, proudly displayed a banner on its website saying Black Lives Matter. Corporations are happy to say Black Lives Matter. Well, they were at least last year, and it was it was sort of a new thing for them to say it. But of course, um, how do they manifest that in their business models is a whole different thing. If, of course, if you indeed uh, say that Black Lives Matter, um, what does it mean for how you pay black workers? But it isn't just about working for a company that voluntarily decides to treat you well, right? This seems to be an issue that even if Amazon were to pay $20 an hour towards workers in Bessemer, those workers still don't have the right to collect, wouldn't still have the right to collectively right. bargain. You don't get job security. All of those, having union representation gives you a suite of rights that you don't have, even if you might be a well-paid worker somewhere. Right, exactly, exactly. So, so what, what Jeff Bezos did in uh, June of 2020 was to say Black Lives Matter and I'm going to give $10 million, which is like a penny to me. Um, he could lose that much money and not right. even notice it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What, what, m the money he makes in like three seconds. So $10 million uh, to a number of black organizations and to the ACLU and others, but the Urban League, NAACP, others got money. And, you know, not, no surprise that when these workers began their campaign to try to, you know, to in, enter this National Labor Relations Board elections, um, we heard nary a word from the National Urban League, um, very little from NAACP, very little from those organizations that took uh, Basil's money. Um, and so there's that. And then, as you're saying, this fight, the fight for union recognition, union protection, is about so much more than wages. It's about dignity. It's about workplace conditions. I mean, Amazon's one of the most dangerous places to work. You know, I mean, the, 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 they don't have control of the labor process. The health conditions, healthcare are terrible. The speed ups, um, the fact that you don't have, you can't have bathroom breaks um, of, of that are humane, um, you know. And the same company um, back when the the campaign was taking place, they were spending ten thousand dollars a day on consultants to break the to to basically convince workers in these mandatory meetings that the union is not only dangerous, but they just take your dues and give you nothing for them, you know? So. Plenty of misinformation there. Well, I could talk to you for another few hours, but we're out of time. Uh, Professor Robin Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today and helping link all of these issues in this big picture. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's always great to be with you, Sonali. Thank great. you. My guest has been Professor Robin D.G. Kelly, a professor in the Department of African-American Studies, distinguished professor of history and Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at UCLA. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify.